Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So the latest on that uh, shooting at that gay bar in Colorado Springs over the weekend where five were murdered and 18 were injured. And as we understand it from local law enforcement, uh, two people inside that club acted heroically to subdue the shooter and probably save a lot of lives. We have uh, a suspect in custody. They do locally there, but we don't know at this point, at least as far as I've been apprised, that uh, whether or not or what the motive was, there's been no sort of associated hate crimes charges forthcoming in addition to, of course, the murder and attempted murder charges. Right. They're investigating it as a hate crime right now. But here's the chief, uh, Adrian Vasquez from Colorado Springs, explaining what happened. We actually had two incredibly brave, uh, at least two incredibly brave citizens that were inside the club. And uh, as soon as they could, they grabbed onto him uh, and and detained him for us. And uh, they uh, potentially stopped a lot of people from uh, getting killed. They they saved lives by jumping into action right away and, and good for them. But there was a drag show going on at the time. So people are assuming that he went in there guns a blazing because of the drag show, which personally, what I mean, that's where drag show should be at night for adults not during the day for children, whether it's playing bingo or reading. So hopefully, I mean, we don't we know, don't, but this guy's crazy, and he threatened to kill his well. mom with a— Well, he threatened to kill his mom with a bomb last year. The neighborhood was evacuated. Um, his mo- mom, he was charged with kidnapping. And it somehow, once again, that raises a question. He was charged with a felony, but yet he was able to arm himself and carry out a mass shooting. He should have been in jail. But that, 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 once again, that's what happens. I, they, I don't know what's going on with who the prosecutor is in Colorado Springs, if they're soft on crime, if they're like Kim Fox or not. But this person threatened to kill his mom with a, with a bomb. The technical, tech, excuse me, tactical team was called in, too. And yet a year later, here he is. And he was convicted? Yes, he was. And what, were, what was he convicted of? He was charged with kidnapping and possession of a deadly weapon. And he was out. A year later, and I don't know if his mom decided to drop charges against him. I have to find that out. But he was charged with a felony, according to ABC News. Charged with a felony. Charged with a felony. Did you? Did you? Hold you on. said convicted. No. Well, one other. Let me double check that. Hold on. But he he should not. Have, I mean, well, you have a person who is clearly mentally ill, and yet again, he's able to buy weapons, and we don't know if he stole that weapon. But ABC News was saying that they're looking into where he purchased the weapon. Yeah, uh, typically uh, I like to exercise some restraint in these moments because usually you have information that is incorrect with 
these news agencies that rush to try to paint a picture that may or may not be accurate. So uh, let's stick to what we actually know versus what somebody on ABC News is speculating about. Um, the, uh, of course, the the other piece of this, unlike the, you know, 18 to 70 people shot every weekend in Chicago, is when it occurs at a nightclub, gay nightclub like this, it's the occasion for politicians of the left to opine. And so that's what we had over the weekend, starting here in Chicago. Lori Lightfoot, quote, I'm sick of this blank. She's really sick of it, so she used profanity to show you how impassioned she is. I'm sick of this blank. How many people need to be murdered? How many lives torn apart until it actually stops? We don't have to live like this, and we don't have to die like this. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Those statements obviously dripping with the irony of her tenure as mayor of Chicago. I don't think I need to tee up uh, you know, this uh, or tee off on this softball that uh, the Tribune dutifully offered. But, I mean, just the cynicism, I guess I would say, of feeling like you need to weigh in on this to express your outrage, to heap your moral scorn onto the pile because you've got a primary election in a couple of months. That somebody who lives in a glass house, for as tiny as she is, she lives in the biggest glass house in America when it comes to violent crime, to opine on this. Do we hear Lori Lightfoot talk about uh, the guy who mowed down 25 L.A. sheriff's cadets? Uh, one of whom, by the way, is in grave condition. So uh, there's this and that, that's that's a whole nother topic. But it's I, I still don't understand why the person who ran down those cadets is not in custody. And as far as I know, he's not in custody. Um, the you know, the, the these these are terrible. These mass shooting events They're horrible uh, again, obviously. Um, you know, and we've covered them all. Uh, and this, of course, is reminiscent of the pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, but that was, you know, Islamo-fascist inspired. We don't know what the motive was here. But again, going back to the little lady with the big sausage who lives in the biggest glass house in America when it comes to violent crime, choosing to weigh in here. We don't have to live like this. We don't have to die like this. In the last two years, there have been 1,500 Chicagoans who've died like this there have been 7500 chicagoans who've been shot and almost died like this but they do live like this meaning they live in shooting galleries they live in a city that has completely uh, abdicated its role the political leadership of the city in providing for the physical safety of its residents and to hear to get lectured by laurie lightfoot again exhausting exhausting for who whoever is exhausted by trump and his rhetorical excesses and choices and not exhausted by Lori lightfoot you are incredibly dishonest
312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. In Chicago, so in 2020, according to Chuck Gowdy, there were eight trans homicides in Chicago. Last year, there were three. Um, what what Because well, they're saying that, you know, on this, tra- well, yesterday was Trans Day of Remembrance, Dan, on, yeah, on the calendar. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi blames MAGA Republicans for, you know, scorching transphobic violence amid gay nightclub attack. It goes on and on with different people saying that this is, you know, the rhetoric that there's so much anti-gay, anti-lesbian rhetoric being flown around that this is the reason why it happened, which is absolutely not true. Nobody knows the reason yet behind why this happened. This is their attempt to silence people on a range of legitimate topics where there should be discussion. This is what they do. Well, it's not only gay clubs under attack. Synagogues are under attack. Churches are under attack. Schools are under attack by mass gunmen. the, the The alleged epidemic in violence against trans people is a lie. In point of fact, per this propaganda that's being bandied about that you just repeated, the U.S. trans population three times less likely get get murdered than the, uh, the population as a whole. Three times less likely to get murdered than the population as a whole. Yeah, there have been um, violent crimes where trans people have been victimized, and that's a terrible thing. But the idea there's an epidemic, they're being targeted, so on and so forth, is untrue. There is no epidemic. There's no national crisis. It's not happening. The data for all of these men and women of data and science, not happening. It was also the occasion for President Biden to issue a statement to repeat his calls for gun bans. Places that are supposed to be safe, spaces of acceptance and celebration should never be turned into places of terror and violence. Thank you. It happens too far too often. Drive out the inequities that contribute to the violence of LGBTQI plus people. He's added the I. Cannot, must not tolerate hate. So he's, again, trying to advance the propaganda here. Mar- solidarity in marginality. Silence, majority opinion. You're not allowed to. It's too soon to talk about what's happening in schools. Or it's too, too soon to talk about uh, the identitarian incursions into your kid's education. And you can't do it because of what happened. No, well, I wasn't party to that. And I certainly don't support violence against anyone. And so, yeah, we will talk about it. And no, we're not going to just take the agitprop coming from the identitarian left as given, because it's just that, agitprop. But he talked about, of course, the opportunity to address another epidemic. Everything's in a public health epidemic. Violence against LGBTQI+. We must address the public health epidemic of gun violence in all its forms. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Ban assault weapons. We need to enact an assault weapons ban to get weapons of war off America's streets. That's Biden's contribution over the weekend. Mike in Kakano, Wisconsin. Kokano.
on that. Hey, good morning, Dan, Amy. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah. Um, you're right. I mean, it, the the world has gone insane. I, I, I don't know what precipitated this. Um, you know, the edge of prop streaming from the left, um, Dan, as you uh, as you said, it's it, it's so true. I, I I don't. I mean, where do we go? Where do we go from here? How do we how do we make sense of this um, this insane universe that we're caught in? I mean, what what, what is the what what's the end play? And I look to you, Dan. You're a you're a, you're a bright thinker. Um, where do we go? I mean, where does this end? Well, I mean, it's it's that. Thanks for the call. I don't know where it ends, but I mean, it's the same old story of good versus evil. You know, we don't we don't like to talk. We, for all of the the moralizing you get from the left, they're very other than in a political context, they're very loath to talk about good versus evil. They're very loath to recognize that evil exists in this world, which we talk about often in the case of these mass shootings, and particularly when there is no clear motivation or there is a jumbled one. And yeah, mental health and people are uh, have have psychological problems, but you know there there are some people that have no conscience too. There there exists evil in this world. And it's hard to wrap your arms around that. It's something people don't want to contemplate, but it doesn't make it untrue. Uh, one other uh, question that was raised, John Lott, our friend John Lott Jr. from Crime, Research Preven- Crime Prevention Research Center, tweeting out, um, as typical, news media refuses to mention whether the horrific mass public shooting at Club Q in Colorado was a posted gun-free zone. He's looking for anyone in the area to provide evidence if that was a gun-free zone. Oh. Another good question. So you want to talk about if 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 I take your premise as true, Lori Lightfoot, Joe Biden, which I don't, but let's just for the sake of a thought experiment do so. Okay, there's this epidemic of gun violence against the LGBTQ plus community. Well, if I'm a gay club owner, I want to harden my target. So it's okay for open carry, right? You shouldn't we be promoting? Well, concealed or open. Shouldn't we be promoting uh, people with weapons on site? Harden the target, as we talk about with respect to schools. Why don't you harden the targets? Why don't I hear advocacy for Lori, from Lori Lightford or Joe Biden to harden those targets if what they say is true? Perhaps there's another motivation, and safety isn't it. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. 
So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Well, Elon Musk held a plebiscite asking Twitter users whether or not President Trump should be reinstated on Twitter. Did you vote? I I didn't vote. I did. I, 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 15 or 20 million people did. You sure right. Yep. I said yes. Bring him back. Let's go. And he uh, he nearly won reinstatement. Uh, Elon Musk announcing it. Uh, Vox Populi, Vox Day, the voice of the people is the voice of God. President Trump over the weekend at the Republican Jewish Coalition, or he was by Zoom, he was uh, in a Q and A session with leaders of the Republican Jewish Coalition, was asked about the reinstatement, and he said this. Well, I like that he bought it. I've always liked him. I got along with him very well uh, during my days as president, and I got to know him pretty well. Uh, but I do like him. I've, I've always really, you know, he's a, he's a character, and uh, I tend to like characters, but he's smart. Uh, he did put up a poll, and I hear it's very overwhelming, very strong. But I have something called Trump. If you look, it's Trump bone, but it's, uh, it's really fantastic truth, social. And Truth Social uh, is is through the roof. So it looks like uh, Trump may be reinstated, but he, he might not be coming back because he's got a lot of investors who want him to stick with Truth right. Social and make this thing that he tried to stand up or that he's trying to stand up a, a going concern. And couldn't he lose millions, though, if he does one single tweet? So because of his investments in True Social? I, I mean, I, I don't know what the restrictions are in terms of what he is allowed and not, not allowed to do uh, per contract. I, I don't know, per, you know, the terms of that investment vehicle. Uh, Trump, not the only one being reinstated. Uh, Jordan Peterson got reinstated. Yep. Project, Ver- Project Veritas got reinstated. Um, the Babylon Bee got reinstated. You know what's funny about this to me, what, just like watching all this fanfare over the weekend, is this characterization by the left that Musk is some sort of stalwart conservative. And, and he's not at all. In fact, he made the point in advance of the midterms this would be the first election he's voting Republican ever. He said that. Right. So it's not he's, that he's just some conservative stalwart. He's just not an overeducated, under-equipped, iconoclastic, identitarian nutcase. That's exactly what I was going to say. That, that's, that's the thing. And, you know, the reaction to Musk from the left tells you so much more about the left than it does Musk. And I mean, he was even in our sermon yesterday at church, our pastor, and we need to pray for billionaires who allow hateful rhetoric back into social media. And I'm like, what are you? He's not as like, and I tried to talk to her afterwards. Like this, he's not as super conservative. This is the first time he's ever voted Republican. And if dictators from foreign countries are on Twitter, Trump should be on Twitter. Speaking of iconoclastic identitarian nutcases, exactly. Well, I, which is why that that cult you call oh, a church it, it baffles me. But um, 
Uh, regardless, uh, this is how <laughs> CBS News oh, handled so it over fantastic. the weekend. Uh, Jonathan Vigliotti hey. is a, a, a like supposed to be a serious journalist. Yes, I mean, as if there are such a things. There. If there are such things with these uh, legacy media outlets now, this was the uh, announcement CBS News made over the weekend. In light of the uncertainty around Twitter and out of an abundance of caution, CBS News is pausing its activity on the social media site as it continues to monitor the platform, Major. Jonathan Vigliotti, thank you. Thank just you so throw, much. Oh, wow, it's breaking news. Oh, it's serious business. Throw it in at the tag. I mean, normally you would lead with something like that. but yeah, And by the way, we're, we're not going to be into Twitter anymore. Okay, back to you in the studio. <laughs> a, out of an abundance oh, of caution, they actually use that phrase. They're taking COVID terms now and using it in other areas of life. Oh. Well, of course, because that's what safety is do, <laughs> and everything is, you know, forced through safety. So, so just, a, but, but that's a, that's important too. It's not just laughable; it's also important. It tells you a lot about these propagandists, yep. these fake news artists at places like CBS. Out of an abundance of caution, really. Um, Exactly. What is the danger? Right. And what you was tweeted the da- that what, out. What is the danger? What was the and what? What are they, what are they monitor? What are they monitoring specifically? And by the way, their monitoring lasted all of about twenty four hours. So ridiculed was CBS that they, you know, shamefully walked back with their tail between their legs, saying, "No, uh, we're going to continue monitoring, but we're back on Twitter." Oh, well, thank you goodness. Can't do, you can't, in this day and age, you can't run a newsroom without tweeting. I mean, you really can't. People tweet story ideas to you, to certain reporters, tell you about breaking news, send in video that airs up on the 10 o'clock news. So they shot themselves in their own foot by doing because it wasn't just CBS Network. It was all CBS affiliates and CBS O&Os. Yeah, oh my God. So they realized that- quickly that, oh, shoot, we actually need Twitter, idiots. Without the O&Os and without the affiliates, People wouldn't be getting uh, content pushed to them at the local level about irrelevant residential kitchen fires and crack ups on major expressways. Oh my gosh! Well, and and small and, markets and, they need that. And no, nobody needs it. And um, when and, and and who would fill the 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 gaping chasm left by Margaret Brennan from Face the Nation when it comes to you know big government proselytizing tweets? Oh my goodness! So they had to quickly. Uh, close ranks and you know, come up with a cover story, and then of course Musk mocked them as was appropriate with a with like a meme of him uh, as one of the guys from Sh- uh, Brokeback Mountain and CBS as the other one. I can't quit you or whatever he did, but I mean that was essentially That's the gist great. of it. Uh, th- this is how I mean it. Just you, you, we have to remember these things because we see how these. Uh, corporate media fake news operations conduct themselves and then we turned and then we we sort of like we have this mental break where we turn then they cover another story and we're supposed to take what they have to say on anything at face value nothing i've said it before i will say it again there is nothing you should take at face value i'm not saying they don't get anything right but i'm saying every single story And every single person reporting those stories should be treated with suspicion. None of them deserve the benefit of the doubt, the outlets or the personnel. 
and they've demonstrated why over and over and over again. So I don't know why we suspend our disbelief. We talk about a story like this. We talk about two years of, of phony reporting on a phony Russian collusion story. And then we say, well, but CBS is reporting this and ABC is reporting that. Oh, really? Okay, well, that's a starting point of a conversation about what they're reporting. But never, never until you see, which I, I don't see happening anytime soon, a, a real break and change in culture and work product from these outlets, never take anything at face value. Be suspicious of every person and everything that comes from these outlets. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Rob in Lombard, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Uh, good morning, Amy and Dan. Thanks for taking my call. No, uh, ever since Trump first came down the escalator, I've been following along and sort of bookmarking uh, Atlas Shrugged yeah. as kind of a roadmap as to where we're going. But now, I, I think we're in the fountainhead. If you substitute Elon Musk for Gail Wynand and Donald Trump for Howard Rourke and the banner for Twitter, um, I think that's where we're at. I was just wondering uh, if you see that parallel and uh, yeah, where we're headed. It- well, I don't, um, you know, is is Trump Howard Rourke? Sometimes, sometimes not. Um, you know who else? But another character from Fountainhead who needs a, a an application in the modern context is Ellsworth Tui, uh, who right was the the, the architecture critic, and re- and remember the the great exchange between Ellsworth Tui and Howard Rourke. And if you haven't read the book, um, we'll read the book. But you should also see the movie. Gary Cooper is Howard Rourke. Um, yes, and that the the um, that exchange where Ellsworth Tui, who's been very critical of Howard Rourke's work product and so on and so forth, and and he says, no, but but really, really, Ellsworth Tui to Howard Rourke, really, really, I want I want to know what you think of me, and Howard Rourke says to him, I don't think of you, and that's yes. exactly how you, we should respond to these ankle biters who work for the legacy media. I don't think of you. You are not relevant. You are not important. And I don't think of you. And I don't place any value in what you do. Thanks for the call, Rob. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. The answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560. The answer. 
Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Action, reaction. President Trump announces that he's running for a third, running a third time for President of the United States, running in 2024, of course. And the reaction, Merrick Garland announces the appointment of a special prosecutor in the investigation into President Trump. Of course he does. So let's uh, get a little bit of the legal handle on it and the political handle on it, uh, because, of course, there's been no special prosecutor announced to investigate Biden, Inc., despite the evidence surrounding the big guy's involvement in his son's and his brother's far-flung dealings. Professor Jonathan Turley from George Washington University was on Fox on Friday uh, uh, per the announcement of the special counsel, and we'll get to that individual specifically in a moment. And uh, here's what he had to say about the likelihood of the special counsel's focus. Despite all the talk about Jan 6, more likely it's going to be about the documents at Mar-a-Lago. The, the January 6th uh, controversy uh, is, is going to be a difficult you know, area for the special counsel because the speech itself, in the view of many of us, that Trump gave uh, was protected speech. And the January 6th committee really didn't come up with any direct evidence that we yes. could see of a crime yet. It's really Mar-a-Lago that... I would be most worried about if I were on the Trump team. There are real risks here for the former president. There were statements made to the FBI about the presence of classified evidence at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, this was a self-inflicted wound, and it could be potentially charged. And so I think that's where most of us will be looking in terms of the special counsel. And, uh, and a point that uh, Turley makes here in terms of there's real danger is, you know, this is much more limited in scope than trying to make heads or tails of everything that happened on January 6th, while at the same time working to protect sacred cows like the FBI, which is clearly what's been going on. This is narrower. This is about the documents and uh, representations made to the FBI about the documents in the in possession and whether they're technically the statements or the documents in possession technically represent violations of the law. And uh, here's Turley's assessment of the special prosecutor, the appointment of. You wouldn't have appointment of a special counsel unless they felt that there was a there there. I mean, they they Garland clearly believes that there's a potential for criminal charges. That's why most of us are looking at Mar-a-Lago as the uh, focus here. Um, that is not good news uh, for Donald Trump or the Trump team. Well, yeah, you obviously think there's potential criminal charges, uh, or you don't uh, you don't initiate this unprecedented raid on the home of a former president. So that sort of goes without saying, but I guess it bears restating. So the, the, the point here is narrower, more finite in terms of scope. And thus, if the idea was in part to 
launch the presidential campaign now to push off the DOJ barbarians at the gate past 2024, that may not be how it goes down. Now, I mean, the spectacle of a former president and a and now a presidential candidate being right. indicted. But if Trump is indicted, could he still run for president? Yeah, why okay. not? There's right. nothing that there's nothing that prevents him from running. And point of fact, maybe he's even anticipating that. Maybe that's that could even be part of his election strategy. The backlash okay. against the FBI uh, if they indict him over the handling of documents that were you know, purloined from his time at the White House. And what, what does he have now? He has a great setup to remind everybody in the country and with a particular eye towards Republican primary voters of the persecution he has endured from the first time he was a candidate to more than six years ago now. I know. Two impeachment trials. I mean, it's just. Well, this is the point that Jim Jordan made. Jim Jordan was on with uh, Maria Bartiromo over the weekend, uh, along with Jim Comer, talking about their the, the press conference they had last week that we went over on Friday and the investigations uh, by their respective House committees that are going to take place once they are formally installed as the chairman of their respective committees, Comer, House Oversight, Jordan, uh, Judiciary. And this was Jordan's take not only on you know, the expanse of what's happened since Trump arrived on the scene some six plus years ago, but also specifically this special counsel. So now you have everything that he has endured as a potential that that provides a potential for him to rebuild some of his political capital. I'm talking about Trump. You also have the latest guy coming after him and how conflicted he arguably is based on his work history, Jim Jordan. Offers. But I want to go back. I want to go back to May of 2013. The inspector general at the Treasury Department issues a report and says Obama's IRS targeted conservatives. In our in our investigation at that time, we discovered that the Department of Justice was trying to find ways to prosecute the very people who Obama's IRS targeted. And, and Maria, guess who? Guess who was the, the lead person at the Justice Department looking for ways to target and prosecute the very people Lois Lerner went after? Jack Smith, the guy Merrick Garland just named as special counsel to go after President Trump. Now, think about this in the broad sense. In 2016, they spied on President Trump's campaign. In 2018, it was the Mueller investigation. In 2020, they suppressed the Hunter Biden story just days before the most important election we have. And in 2022, 91 days before the midterm election, they raided President Trump's home. And then this week, Three days after President Trump announces he's running for president, one day after Mr. Comer did his press conference, guess what? Merrick Garland says, we're going to put in as the special counsel the very individual who was at the Justice Department and was looking for ways to prosecute the people Lois Lerner and Obama's IRS targeted. If that's not a political Justice Department, I don't know what is. So, Jim Jordan, uh, wow. if President Trump, if he could, should hire Jim Jordan as his communications director. Yeah. Because he, he, he knows the rub. I mean, the DOJ has been weaponized, weaponized against Trump, and they're not going to stop. And his point is it, it predates even Trump. It goes back to the Obama years, the targeting of conservatives by the IRS. Lois Lerner and the IRS power structure at the time, they get a pass. 
And now Jack Smith, the prosecutor who's been appointed by Merrick Garland to be the special counsel in the Trump investigation, was there looking at ways not to hold Lois Lerner and gang accountable, but to uh, essentially double down on what Lois Lerner and company were doing and find out, figure out ways to prosecute conservative groups who were illicit, who were illegally having their 501c3 status uh, uh, withheld, yeah. who were being asked all sorts of questions that violate their constitutional rights, pro-life groups asking, being asked for uh, copies of the prayers they pray and so forth, uh, in case you've forgotten. Um, that's a pretty good summary that Jim Jordan gave of the last, uh, well, decade, the last decade under this sort of regime, if you will, even when President Trump was president, this regime, this permanent regime in D.C. And I, I got to tell you, you think about this and you listen to that summary from Jim Jordan. And maybe the best thing that could happen to Trump politically. Is to be indicted by this special counsel, this Department of really? Justice. What do you think? Three one, three one yeah, yeah, three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six. Type in DA, then a quick comment. It's just strange because it's not only investigating the documents that were at his house, but it's also related to his actions on January sixth. Well, so he, and here's that's so convoluted. That's a lot. <laughs> no, here's what they're doing. What are they they're doing? saying. I mean, this is what I think Turley's getting at. Just sort of, my, sort of my interpretation. They, they, there's nothing. They don't have anything on January 6th. January 6th commission didn't come up with anything. It, you want to offer some tortured interpretation of his speech as yelling fire in a crowded theater. It's not going to wash. That it's not. It's 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 illegitimate that argument, and it, it's just not going to wash in a court of law. They don't have anything, and they also clearly based on the Jan 6th commission. That that star chambers antics for the last year and a half, combined with the questions that Christopher Ray and Merrick Garland won't answer about the FBI and DOJ and their involvement in Jan six or lack thereof. What we don't know about communications between law enforcement and the sergeants at arms in both the House and the Senate and what they communicated Pelosi McConnell, all these things that we don't know. And it doesn't seem like they want anybody to know either. Right. Jan six is not where they're going to get them. They're they're going to try to get them on documents, and make it. We, it's a really about Jan sixth. But the way we get them is is uh, the documents. Right, just like trying to get somebody on mail so, fraud. But so, don't you think the Democrats are getting nervous now that you know three days after announces he's going to run again for reelection? Boom, there's a special counsel appointed. I don't know. You know, That's if 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 I'm right. And if everybody who says the Democrats want Trump, Republicans and Democrats, they want Trump and uh, that they there's the one guy they know they can beat and they want him to be the nominee. Well, then arguably that they'll they'll indict him. They'll find a way to indict him with this special counsel. Merrick Garland takes a step back. He's a candidate. So I'm going to wash my hands. I'm going to pretend there's, you know, some there's a veil of ignorance between me and the special counsel's office, even though I make ultimate decisions here, but I'm going to let them do the investigation, you know, to, to avoid any appearance of impropriety. Oh, okay. Sure. Of course, Merrick. Um, so, we, so both sides, so, so, so they would want him indicted as well. So and both sides may want Trump indicted. They want him indicted and he wants to be indicted because it benefits him politically and they both want Trump to be benefited politically because they both want him to be the nominee. He wants to be the nominee and so do they want him to be the nominee. 
Uh, am I starting to lose my mind, or what do you no, think? No, I think that's. I don't know. Great possibility. I don't know. I mean, you couldn't rather than have it rather than running against Ron DeSantis, run against the FBI and DOJ. Who do you think is a more, uh, uh, you know, a a, a a better target for Trump, a target that would engender more goodwill? Slugfest with Ron DeSantis, or mm-hmm. saying, you know, these people tried to get, have been trying to get me ever since I came here, and they're. And you know that I'm just a proxy for you. They get me. They get a president of the United States, former president of the United States. They get a presidential candidate. Don't think that there are any restraints on them coming after you. You know how they viewed people speaking up at school board meetings. I mean, that that to me is sets right up there. for his campaign. Yeah. And it's a 2.0 of the 2016 campaign, just with slightly different targets. But still the swamp. I don't know. I think that you need to get in contact with Trump's people. <laughs> Why don't you get on that, Dan? I'm good from here. Okay. Uh, I'll stay here. Uh, Don, uh, John in Naperville, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning. I really welcome this indictment, and I hope that there would be full discovery where Trump could subpoena everybody from Nancy Pelosi to this prosecutor, everybody, and have them testify under oath how they changed uh, – uh, FISA warrant applications and how they've done all these things. Get, let, let's really bring this thing to full light, guys. Well, right, but that's not going to happen. I mean, under it's an interesting point. But see, they're using Jan Six to, per, to to pretend that that they have a play there. But Jan Six is just a veneer. And when they don't charge him for anything related to Jan Six, they just charge him related to the handling of classified documents. Then there, then any discovery with respect to Jan Six would be outside the scope of the indictment. So you wouldn't get that discovery. That's sort of my point. It's the perfect the classified documents, which is a self-inflicted wound, by the way. But maybe it turns out as something that he can leverage to his advantage, which essentially I'm arguing. Um, but the 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 Jan Six just keeps keeps everybody focused. You get to use the threats to our democracy line of attack. Going into 2024, you get to continue to to pump that. But it's it's sort of suspended, suspended animation. It doesn't go any further than where we are now. And you indict him on the classified documents uh, on charges related to handling of classified information, classified documents. It's that that seems to me the best case scenario for uh, a political class that wants Trump to be the nominee. And Trump, who wants to be the nominee. Strange bedfellows. Mark in Oak Lawn. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Dan. How you doing? Good. Thank you. Hey, uh, you know, a couple things. You know, you if, if they get Trump trying to get him for the uh, classified information, you know, what about Hillary Clinton? She did the same thing. I mean, she brought all that stuff on her server, different servers. So you could call her as a witness also. But here's the point of my real call is that Kevin McCarthy, you know, he's going to be the uh, House speaker and all that. But, uh, you know, the, the guy in Revolver came out, which is a pretty good source, that uh, he had he had money from uh, Bankman from FTX and was giving it to the anti-Trump candidates. And uh, so Kevin Kevin McCarthy has never come out and said that uh, the election was a fraud. He's never come out and really said anything about that. 
he basically plays both sides. And uh, he's a rhino. And uh, so I really feel for the Republicans how they're going to have any uh, giving Trump an opportunity because they're against him. McConnell, McCarthy, you know, uh, I, I'm sure, I'm not sure about DeSantis. I don't know. You know, he, he should be coming out against McCarthy and McConnell and speaking out against these guys because they're they're rats. Well, so that's th- it. Thanks. thanks for the call, Mark. I mean, you know, what's funny is um, <laughs> it, it really does seem like it's 2016 all over again. Yeah, it's like tr- tr- I mean, uh, although there's a lot more scar tissue built up around Trump than there was. You, you, people didn't take him, myself included. People didn't take him seriously in 2016. They take him seriously now, but he's still basically, you know, a man on the outside, even though he's a former president. He's a man completely on the outside of the political establishment, which is probably the best place for him to try to run an insurgent uh, primary campaign as a former president. It's the it's the darndest of things. I got to tell you, it, the, you, I mean, this is like the stuff of a great um, uh, novel, like a great uh, fiction uh, novel, pol- political intrigue and so forth. It's just um like this is like like a cloak and dagger type of thing that not Jean La Carre could not even dream up I think but but that's where we're at that's really where I think we're at and so I'm not saying that necessarily this is a strategy that is being cooked up by DOJ for, for the limited and express purpose of making Trump the nominee but don't ever think that any of these decisions don't include at least in part a political calculus and so, again, follow the premise, follow what Thomas Sowell says. Don't tell you don't look at what people say their positions are. Look at the premise from which they're starting. The premise is that the left wants Trump to be the nominee because they think that he can't win. The Republicans establishment in particular, but some conservatives, too, who have tired of Trump for all sorts of reasons we've discussed over the last couple of weeks. Um, they want to move on from Trump as well. So he's on the outs with uh, a lot of the Republican Party. He's uh, he's he's uh, the perfect pinata for the left, and they want to continue to beat him. And of course, he's running his own program, and he wants to be the nominee. So he gets to juxtapose his himself against the same sort of institutions he did in 2016. Slightly different dynamics, particularly if he was running under indictment. But I mean, it's it. it I don't know. It's sort of like what everybody wants, all coming together. It's bizarre. It's sort of fun to watch. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. You've made the switch, and it feels so good. You switch to Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Hey, Dan, can I make a correction? Please? Go ahead. Uh, You're right. The gunman in the Colorado Springs Club Q shooting was charged with kidnapping because he claimed he had a bomb at his mom's house, uh, but never the charges were dropped. So he was charged with a felony at one point in time, but they never came to fruition. And he never well, actually had a bomb. And, uh, you know, that tactical team 
argued or not you know, negotiated with him. It was last year. Goes it was last year. So he was he was still an adult at the time. Well, that Living that'll be a conversation, or that'll there'll be obviously questions surrounding his family life and the interaction with law enforcement that predated the horrific shooting over the weekend. So we'll continue to stay right. up keep you updated on that story as and well, Mike just Scott. Just so you know, Mayor Lightfoot and Pete Buttigieg, the Transportation Secretary, are going to be together having a press conference at uh, O'Hare Airport. I'm sure they'll be talking about it as well. Of course. The, the, you could, they'll rinse and repeat. Uh, well, we know Triple Threat, the little lady with, who lives in the biggest glass house in America when it comes to violence and death, will be offering some more of her uh, signature moral indignation. That that only applies to violence in certain contexts, not, for example, the context of the city over which she is the executive. Yeah, interesting. We'll see about the uh, docile Chicago press corps, see if they have any questions for her about violence in a place where she has the primary responsibility to provide for the public safety. See if she wants to talk about that at all. Mm hmm. Uh, all right. Um, this is uh, per- perhaps a precedent-setting case you might want to pay attention to. It's out of uh, Villa Park, Villa Park School District, 45 to be specific. A lawsuit was filed in April by uh, a dad of a Villa Park District 45 student. Clearly, the couple is now divorced. He he's in Florida. He's the parent of a student identified as a 12-year-old 6th grade student at Jackson Middle School in Villa Park. Public documents here and a report from those public documents. In the lawsuit, uh, Brian Vesely is his name, accuses the school district, District 45, of conspiring with his ex-wife to trample his parental rights by encouraging their child to transition from male to female without consulting the father and against his wishes. He asserts that the school district's actions are violative of his constitutional rights to direct the upbringing and education of his child, rights granted under the U.S. and Illinois constitutions. He's seeking a court order to forbid District 45 staff from referring to students using a name or pronouns at odds with their biological sex without parental consent. Uh, The response from the school district is instructive, and the adjudication of this case will thus be as well. The uh, ex-wife claims their custody arrangement from the divorce does not give the ex-husband the legal standing to sue over the child's gender expression. But uh, the district has also, that's secondary, the district has intervened. They're making a, a claim as well. The district is asserting that the dad's rights as a parent do not supersede the rights, the privacy rights of the students or the school district's responsibility under state and federal law to respect the gender expression choice. The school district claimed the father's rights as a parent do not compel the district to share even with him private gender records for for his son. They went further saying that his parental rights are all but eviscerated if he disagrees with his son's gender transition and expression, citing um, the uh, Youth Mental Health Protection Act, which was ostensibly passed into law to protect, uh, quote, protect 
transgender youth from conversion therapy. Mm-hmm. It's like in the anti-conversion therapy move, banning the practice. But the school district argues that when that the law actually uh, is at bar here clearly demonstrates that when parents are unsupportive of their children's mental health and gender identity, they are not the best person to make decisions regarding the same by limiting the mental health treatment parents can impose on their gay and trans kids. The act limits parental rights to control the upbringing of their trans children in order to protect the fragile mental health and well-being of our trans youth, according to the school district. Asking the district to do anything other than affirm the new gender identity of this dad's son, 12-year-old son, is essentially asking the district to refuse to recognize this kid by his gender identity and so on and so forth. So um, that's a pending case. And it's not dissimilar to other cases we've heard uh, around the country and other countries, including Canada, where there's a disagreement between mom and dad and the judge rules you know, for one party. This is a little bit different because a potentially a federal judge could hold under Illinois law that whichever parent is not on board, that parent is out. Right. Three and one we, two. And we and we talk and we talk to a woman who that happened to right. um right. a few weeks back. I'm I'm blanking on, on her name now, but a mom who was essentially removed from her child's life because she wasn't on board with the child's transition. And it was a Chicago mom who's not a Republican by any means. Right. Who lost uh complete control and they took over so in this case the plaintiff who lives in florida but he's the child's father regardless of where he lives is saying that the mom and the school district are conspiring against him and trampling his parental rights to encourage their child to transition this is a sixth grade boy so if you if you if your kid comes home and says i'm going from this to that and you don't support it both parents, potentially, depending on the adjudication of the case, potentially both parents could be out of their children's life, their kids' life, right? Because the, the school district is saying we have a legal responsibility. We are in the primary role here. And if Joey says he wants to be Sally and mom and or dad disagree then mom and or dad are out and we're in 312-642-5600 turnkey.pro answer line 64636 type in da then a quick comment you think this will have a chilling effect or do you think this will rile people up to assert their rile parents up to assert their rights i i really i especially in illinois i don't know where there's such a um uh, a, a, a scourge of cowardice among the electorate in this state. I really don't know because the when I, I, okay, whatever you say, whatever you say, you know, pre adolescents are in charge of the family now. He's we know that, great. and and they've got the backstop of the school district. So between your pre adolescent and the school district, who wants to who wants to tangle with them? Just do whatever they say, and nobody gets hurt. I mean, except your kid. Who what are you going to do? I mean, as long as the 
you know, government-run schools are in charge. They don't care. You think they what really you, care about this boy? They care about power. So what are you going to do, parents, with kids in K through 12? What would you do in this situation? What would you the, – the, the, even the better scenario is mom and dad agree, and they disagree with the school district and the kid. So now it's school district and kid versus mom and dad. What are you going to do, mom and dad? What would you do? I mean, could you pull the kid from the school district, send him to a private school? You better do so quickly if that's the play. You better, and you better, you better measure twice and cut once wherever you think you're putting him that's going to be a sanctuary from this sort of trans hysteria. Jim in Naperville. Hey, Dan and Amy. Love your show. Thanks for bringing this, uh, this issue up to the forefront. I'm actually a school teacher, and I had a student in middle school started out the year this young lady wanted to be called a boy's name and um, wanted to be treated like a boy. And then four months later in the school year, now the young lady wants to be treated like a girl and she's back to being a girl. So by what I'm seeing is this is such a, it's such a, um, a kid issue where the kids are just going through these changes and if they do anything that they can't reverse, that's going to be a huge problem for these kids. Yeah. So I'm witnessing yeah. it firsthand, and it, it's not going to stick for these kids. It's just they're looking for attention, and they're getting attention. And we're being instructed to affirm them and make sure that you do whatever they say. Right. But the kids, they just want to be kids. They want to be kids, and they want to. They end up coming out the right way, you know, the way that God made them, basically. Well, thanks for the call, Jim. I appreciate sharing that story, but I'm sorry that's you know that's not good enough because uh, the kids have a more important role than being kids. They're they're uh, cannon fodder for political activists. That's their more important use. So. That's what it's going to be. So the kid in that the story that Jim tells, so uh, she's she goes from a she to a he. Well, you better be on board, or you're out, and you can't come back in when he goes back to a she because you're already gone. You failed the affirmation litmus test. As I said. You have to, you're, you're, I mean, if this is the approach you take, I don't want any trouble. Then you're captive to whatever happens. Whether it happens once or there's a back and forth, as Jim's describing in the story of one of his students. You better be on the side of affirmation or else hate to see something happen to your kid. Hate to see something happen to your involvement in your kid's lives for the foreseeable future. As long as we have them, we have them. You don't have them. You get it? The NEA just published a uh, pronoun booklet. National Education right. Association. Yeah. Pronoun guide oh, no. that's being distributed. Of course it's being distributed. And, boy, it's tough to keep up 
it's going to be tough even for the teachers to keep up. I mean, we mentioned that Microsoft inclusion flag from a couple of weeks ago that, that Microsoft Microsoft rolled out this inclusion flag. Forty different gender identities in uh, that gift program in San Francisco, where you can get paid to be transgender. You get paid. Right. It's a universal basic income if you're transgender in San Francisco. Ninety-seven different genders. Ninety-seven. Well, keep going. Why not? Yeah, you bet. Just affirm. You only get to clap. Whatever the kid says, whatever the teachers' union say, that's what it's going to be. So just play along, and nobody gets hurt except your kid. But at least you get to be in their lives, right? Is that the argument? It's going to be a lot of recriminations. A lot of recriminations coming, I have a feeling. Jeff and Berwin, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Greetings, Dan and Amy. Rhetorically, how long, what is it going to take for parents to start doxing these school district superintendents, principals, and school boards that are pushing this obscene perversions on young children that have no self-defense? Um, what's it going to take for parents to show up to school board meetings and show up in school board elections and get together and put up candidates against individuals where appropriate in school boards across Chicagoland come the spring. That's the more pressing question to me. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, what came out of the uh, U.N. climate conference in Egypt that ended over the weekend? I get to see everybody's private plane. Well, that's one of the things. Nice, uh, nice jets there, huh? Yeah, the Sharm uh, El shakedown lived up to its moniker. The uh, commitment now, in addition to the $100 billion a year that rich countries are promising to pay poor countries to reduce emissions and adapt to climate change, now we have a new round of reparations mm-hmm. where rich countries are going to be, like the United States, are going are agreeing to pay reparations to the developing world for the damage done by climate change, by our emissions. This is, you know, scaling the reparations conversations we have at the domestic yeah. level in this United States, in, in the United States for all sorts of groups, starting, of course, with black Americans. Yeah, and the fund would earmark money for what is known as loss and damage. Okay, with, right. with rising seas and all that, we're going to pay and all the details about who pays what, how yeah. much goes into the kitty. Uh, that's to be determined. They reached an agreement with some 134 developing countries. I'm not even going to comment. I'm going to cede my time to <laughs> our friend Jim uh, Carafano, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, VP of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, author of. Brutal War, Jungle Fighting in Papua New Guinea, 1942. Uh, Jim, uh, another diplomatic accomplishment from this Biden administration. So what I'm 
what I'm waiting for is, is since it's demonstrably proven that developed nations have delivered the greatest rise in human wealth and prosperity in the history of the human race, the fund in which the developing countries will reimburse the developing for all of the positive and constructive things that they've delivered them. So I'm sure, I'm, actually, I think if we balance that out, rather reparations are going to be owing us money. My my yeah. one biggest concern here is, is, is we've demonstrably proven through decades of foreign assistance that simply transferring wealth from richer countries to poorer countries doesn't make poorer countries more wealthy. What well, improves... Yeah, I mean, it's just I mean, actually... Well, well that's, that's where I wanted you... That, I'm glad you went there, because that's exactly where I wanted to go, which is all you do is keep the impoverished impoverished. It's it's plantation politics, which we like to play in big cities in America. George Ayete, I mean, he wrote a book, uh, Africa Betrayed, 25 years ago, and among other scholars, about how devastating all this foreign aid has been to African countries, which go to enrich dictators in power and do very little for the people who must live under them. And we just continue on because throwing money at things, we like it here, makes us feel good. We like it overseas, too, makes us feel good. Well, and we've already imposing on them all kinds of policies and restrictions. So it, it really is just a new form of imperialism. Uh, and, and there is no such thing as a blank check. So I'll, I'll give you a good example, Kosovo, which is a, a tiny country um, which is really being held back because they really lack uh, an electrical grid to really be a first-class European country. They have a, an old, tired coal plant, which they've been trying to replace forever. But God forbid we would help them fund a, a new coal plant. That would be unforgivable. And uh, the other answer was, well, we'll just run a gas pipeline and the coast of problem solved. Instead, the United States government, to the tune of quite a big thing, we're going to help them build a battery plant. Now, because we're all about green technology. Now, they have no electricity to power the batteries that the plant is going to produce, but, mm -hmm. but they're going to have a battery plant. Mm -hmm. And then they're all going to be driving Teslas, and it'll be just that yeah. easy. No, it is. I mean, it is. But it, this is the thing: is it all sounds incredibly altruistic. It's not. First, first of all, it, it's we don't get a vote in this. They're literally taking our tax dollars and giving it to other people, and without we don't get a say. in do anybody vote for these policies? And and the other thing is, is they're they're just imperialism. They're going to make people's lives worse. It's the ultimate. This is FTX on a global scale. It doesn't matter how many people we scam, bankrupt, rob, or cheat from. You know, we have good intentions of generically doing good, and therefore we get to get out of jail free card. Because our ASG scores are perfect. Therefore, we can do no wrong, even though we're doing massive wrong. So all we've done is taken the, this Yahoo living in the Bahamas who's completely responsible, and then we've seen a group of global leaders act on that scale of, of malfeasance. It's breathtaking. And that's not the only thing. Uh, the G20 summit, uh, that was where uh, Joe Biden was confused uh, about the difference between Cambodia and Colombia, that summit. Um, I do that all the time. 
Yeah, yeah, of course. And you're not even uh, the president of the United States. Easy. He turned 80 yesterday. Uh, happy 80th. Uh, the, the the word from the G20, among other things, this didn't get very much coverage. I wonder why. The leaders there signed on to a declaration which states that vaccine passports will be adopted to, quote, facilitate, unquote, all international travel. This is I don't know if this is you know, this is one of those things where they they sign, a, you know, a sort of an agreement in principle that we're all philosophically aligned in this direction and not, it won't necessarily happen, of course. But the fact that the G20 countries are all aligned in that direction is a bit troubling to me, at least. No, I mean, look, this even though it's nonsensical, right, and and it may or may not ever happen. You know, Biden can say I'm going to give $10 billion in reparations and, and the Congress may or may never vote for it. It, it is, you know, you know, this thing called opportunity cost, right? You know, yeah. it's what else could you have done with that time and resources and money? What else could we have done with the national leadership of the United States and the world rather than watching Chauncey Gardner jet back and forth on, <laughs> you know, to, to uh, Sharma uh, Sheikh? I mean, this, I think, is an existential question. You know, this president has squandered. I mean, look, look at a perfect example: the Iran deal. He squandered two years of diplomacy and effort and sacrifice in getting a deal which wasn't gettable, and which was actually do nothing for Americans. And and yesterday, the Iranians just announced they're going into a joint production agreement. With with Russia to build drones so they can attack innocent Ukrainians. And still the, the Biden administration say, okay, well, we're finally done with the Iran deal, washing our hands here. No, they're still hopeful that, oh, someday the Iranians will do a deal with us. But this is, this is, this is what happens when you say, what's the harm of, you know, let's just vote for somebody that doesn't have mean tweets in our chair. What, what harm can come of this? Well, now we know. Um, on the matter of Ukraine, since uh, you invoked it, uh, there was a report out over this weekend that uh, Ukrainians are are on the march. They believe they could retake Crimea by the spring. Are, are we on a trajectory towards a complete victory for Ukraine, uh, repelling the Russians and reestablishing uh, Ukrainians, uh, you know, post twenty twelve borders? Yeah, I, I don't uh, pre twenty twelve borders. I mean, yeah, you know, I you know, I don't know to be. To be honest, I mean, it, the winter is coming. It's very difficult doing in the campaign. You got to cross water. It's it, I, you could see where they would make life very difficult for the Russians, but you could also see where the Russians would would do everything possible to hold on to that piece of ground. Um, to me, the most significant thing that's already changed here is that you know part of the reason why the Russians want Crimea is it's their access to the Black Sea. They host their military fleet there and their submarines, but it's already militarily useless to the Russians because now it's everything in Crimea is in range of Ukrainian rockets and missiles. So that's no longer a safe port for the Russians to occupy. So, I mean, the, the Ukrainians essentially could shut that thing down whenever they wanted to, and you could never operate any military fleet out of there. So uh, the, 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 the staggering loss of Russian strategic advantage here is, is, is almost breathtaking. You know, not to mention that, and I've been saying that, I think it's true. I mean, we'll see. I'm not sure Putin will ever be able to invade another country in his lifetime. 
Um, that's, that's look at good. one thing I would say about you know the Ukrainians going on. You have to remember that um, even though the Russians really lack a lot of combat power and go back on the offensive, every inch of ground you take, you have to defend. Every every inch forward you move, that's an inch more that you have to stretch your supply chain, um, and you need another soldier, and you need another meal, and you need you know, so it is going on the offensive. If you if you push too far. You, you, you create robot, which is what the Russians discovered in their invasion. So um, what's important for the Ukrainians, you, I, sure, I'm sure they'd love to regain their territory, but what's important for Ukrainians is a defensible Ukraine. That's the most important thing. Well, why do you say that about Putin? That Because I'm not sure he'll be able to re... Because for the military to go on offense, you have to have all kinds of things. The Russians have burned through most of those, like their tanks. So, and and they're and they're still under sanction, and they have other economic issues. To rebuild that military, that's going to take time and effort and money. And and I don't know how long Putin's going to live. How long he's going to be in power? But to muster enough capability to to make sure that you can invade a country and win and hold on to it, I'm not sure Putin's confidently ever going to have that again in his lifetime. Hey, uh, we've got uh, Gordon Sundland on the show a little bit later in the program, and I want to see if I can start a war of words uh, a little bit. So, um, so you know, of course, for people who've forgotten, he was the the U.S. ambassador to the EU under Trump, and he testified uh, confusingly, as I recall, during uh, the impeachment proceedings. That would be impeachment one, right, right, right. saying that there was a quid pro quo for aid, but there wasn't a quid pro quo. Uh, what's your what's your handle on Gordon Sunland's performance during the impeachment proceedings and and sort of now, you know now with a, a few years to look back uh, well, the the, okay. the impeachment overall itself and its impact on where we are now vis-a-vis Ukraine? Yeah, well, I, I mean, all I can say pretty confidently is there's zero evidence there was ever a quid pro quo. Um, and, and I look, and I know that also talking from you know how many former Trump officials that I've talked to since folks left office off the record on, on various different things. And I'm absolutely confident that, that, that was, that that was like absolutely a manufactured charge against the president. There's no evidence for that. I mean, other than doing what, what they always do, which is to cherry pick a select bit of evidence and then say, Oh my God, look, here's a smoking gun. What actually all you really have is, is, is a bunch of nonsense. I look at now that you uh, even, I'm not really sure we're doing anything different. I mean, the appointment of the special prosecutor, I mean, I don't know what I don't know, but when I publicly look at what's available, I mean, and what we've seen, both from the, um, the January 6th uh, investigations and from the raid on Mar-a-Lago, explain to me how that rises to the level of a, of a special prosecutor. I mean, explain to me how that rises to the level of the Justice Department not just laughing out of the ramp. So maybe there's something, you know, we don't know here, but I kind of doubt that because if there was something that was really, oh, my God, we totally got Trump, I'm sure they're already leaked. So I, I, I think we're still just playing the same game that we've been playing literally for, for six years, which is we, we, we know we're never going to get Trump, but we have to create the shadow of somehow there really is something there. Trust us, this time there really, really is something there. I mean, that's my impression of what I hear. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always. Appreciate it.
Thank you, my friend. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Hear about the big stories of the day, then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560. The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. This was a fun Twitter fight. An education activist in New York named uh, Eaton Chu. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. but Better you than me. Uh, she uh, tweeted about her experience on the subway, and she drew the ire of uh, New York Times finance propagandist Nicole Hannah-Jones of the 1619 Project. Uh, Ms. Chu tweeted, paid, paid $2.75 to be in a subway car with a loud and aggressive man threatening to hit his female partner. Switch cars at next stop to be in a public toilet. Ur- urine, odor, crowded car for the rest of my ride. Hochul and Adams own it. They said so themselves, referring to the promise for flooding the subway system with cops in the face of the 40% increase in violent crime. Nicole Hannah-Jones, yes, yes, this was absolutely unheard of on subways until two years ago. And then that opened the floodgates for other people to chime in and say that Chu was acting like a child and... She must be a very recent immigrant and so on and so forth. Oh, my gosh. So Nicole Hannah-Jones, who was raised in Iowa. Okay. Uh, and Miss Chu, who grew up in Queens. Yes. Um, right. And, but it, it just that reaction to her just describing what is on the subway and finding that unacceptable, it reminds me of the mentality in Chicago. And the guy a few months back who got winged in the hand with a stray bullet while he was walking with his wife or girlfriend in the loop. In the loop. During the day. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Tell and everybody what he, what he said. What he said, he said uh, you know, yeah. these are the things that happen in the city. Yeah. It's just city living. Just Look, if, if, you, if you don't want to get winged by a bullet, don't live in Chicago. <laughs> if you don't want to, you know, witness a... a, a to be on the precipice of a domestic violence incident or... Or a trans, or or, or a, you know, tr- transit from one place to the other, uh, and not be overwhelmed by the smell of urine. Hey, then don't ride the subway. That's just how it is. But you're paying to, for a product that's just gross. Can't figure out the exodus from the big cities. It's a real mystery. For more on this and other topics, please be joined by Christopher Whalen, investment banker, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, author of. Ford Men from Inspiration to Enterprise and editor of the Institutional Risk An- uh, Analyst. Chris Whalen, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Uh, don't you? I mean, I, that, that, the New Yorkers, uh, the, that's the majority view of New Yorkers, majority view of Chicagoans, these big city denizens. I mean, if you want a decent quality of life and to live relatively safely, I mean, then don't live in New York or Chicago. That's all. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the city's becoming a free fire zone. Uh, you know, the millennials that populate the New York Times are this kind of arrogant, entitled bunch. And if they get assaulted on the subway, or if they get themselves kicked, uh, you know, by somebody waiting outside the restaurant for them, asking, underlined asking for donation, um, then they get a little angry. But the rest of them think this somehow doesn't apply to them. That's what's amazing. Well, they're you know, angry. They they're, they're, uh, they're, Adams. 
they're the Democrats angry. are attacking Adams for talking about safety in the city. You right. They're, 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 they're angry. They're angry there's not a, a universal basic income program, some sort of reparations set up to uh, transfer wealth from, you know, their, the, the rich parents of those New York Times uh, copy desk people to, uh, to the people on the street so they don't have to kick and urinate and, I don't know, and, and everything else. Well, uh, you just hit it on the head, Dan. You know, and you and I know this going back years, but many of the writers at the Times were precisely that, the children of the entitled. And so they had the luxury of being liberal because none of these policies ever impacted them. They could just, you know, wander off after they were done playing Platonic Guardian. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it wouldn't affect them. None of them. So, um, but, I mean, before we leave this topic, just because, you know, you're, 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 you've, you've got long history there, you're there, you, you know the landscape. Oh, yeah. What, what do you take away from... Lee Zeldin's performance to come as close as he did. I mean, six points. It's not that close, but it's closer than recent memory. What is? What is? What do you take away from that? Is that is that just a blip, or is that is that is that a signaling a change? No, I think we got to keep pushing. I think we uh, conservatives in New York State have to make the case that we need change. Uh, We should not take the fact that Lee Zeldin didn't quite make it as negative at all. I think it's very positive. Look at the other outcomes. Right. You know, we got a new Republican here in the Huston Valley. We yeah. knocked out the head of the Democratic campaign committee. So yeah. Awesome. So we got to make the case. We got to go right in their face because if we can beat them in New York, Dan, we can beat them anywhere. That's the key. The, the Republican Party in the U.S. should make defeating the Democrats in New York their top priority. I like it. Um, got a. I'm uh, even thinking about it, guys. I'm thinking about it. So, thinking yeah, about... I'm pissed. Yeah, you're, you're well, thinking about you're thinking about what? You're thinking... <laughs> Running politics. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, what do you want to run yeah, for? Let's I... make an announcement right now. <laughs> Come on. I would love to go after uh, Christian Gillibrand in the Senate. I'm a oh. war legacy. My uh, my people have lived in Poughkeepsie for 250 years, so I don't make any excuses about how I feel about New York. Senator yeah, Christopher uh, Whalen that has a ring to it. It does. Yeah, you like I that? like that. Yeah. I do like that. A slightly yeah. left-wing uh, Republican who's very conservative on fiscal issues because this state, the city, are going to have terrible problems. Every time we convert an office building into residential, which is not easy to do, uh, we're killing the city because the city has to have business revenue. It's just like Chicago. If you don't have business activity in the city, the city doesn't work. You well, can't just have residential. Right. But are people back to work? Are people going back to the office in New York? Somewhat. Somewhat. But it, it's still much less than before COVID. Right. And the mix of, you know, if you go over to Park Avenue over in the east side, that's more of a business crowd. But it's still small. It's not like it was. And then the further west you go in Manhattan, the crazier it gets. So by the time you're over on 8th Avenue, you know. It's, it's wild. And I'll give you an example we talked about earlier. You know, every year the most significant meeting of the mortgage bankers in the United States is at, in Times Square at the Marriott Marquis. I don't think they're coming back because at 4 or 5 in the afternoon when you walk out of that hotel in October, it's like Felix the Cat. You know, forget about it. It's crazy. And people were assaulted. You had a lot of problems last time. So I, I think the city is going to consume itself. That's what we're witnessing.
know the real question I want to ask you guys? What did Jay Powell and Sam Bankman-Fried talk about in February when Sam went to see Jay Powell at the Federal Reserve Board? That's what I want to know. Um, futons in the Bahamas. I, we, yeah. What, what, what is your, <laughs> what is, what is your suspicion? I don't know. They, they just gave this guy credence, uh, when they should not have our whole society was swept up in this silliness called crypto because of the Fed, because of Janet Yellen and Jay Powell and the fact that they played social engineer and pushed interest rates further and further down pursuing full employment. Right. Uh, this is what you get. And now they're going to have to wring the water out of this thing, and we're going to see non-bank companies. You saw Carvana is in the, the press this morning. Yeah. Uh, everybody who was competing with the banks is going to get killed because they can't compete with the banks when Fed funds is at 6 or 7%. Fun work. Well, know? how is this going to work? I mean, because FTX, we're learning this morning that they owe, owe nearly $3.1 billion dollars to top their top 50 creditors is is sam gonna go to jail for this i mean he's still in the bahamas trying to get more investors which is a joke Um, i think he's bought himself protection in the bahamas because the the bahamas kind of liked being the center of crypto they may not like it six months from now um if they were smart they would let the u.s liquidator have this and step back but they won't because they're so invested. Sam spent a lot of money on the island. He, he bought everybody there is. So, you know, the Securities Commission in the Bahamas took possession of Sam's wallet. And I think they're probably going to take his part and oppose the U.S. liquidator. It's going to be a mess. Well, the I U.S. Mean... ultimately, you know, they can bring Bahamas to heel if they want. All the U.S. has to do is shut off their connection to the Fedwire. And Bahamas is done. So well, well, here's the comes to shove. We'll see. Here, here's the good news. I mean, uh, Tom Brady, FTX pitchman, I mean, he brought Antonio Brown into his home. Uh, so I yeah. mean, he could he could bring Sam Bankman-Fried into his home oh, too right. for you know oh, to help to to deal with these troubled times. Well, you know what? It, it, the funny thing is, Kim Kardashian must have good lawyers because they settled quick and early. They wanted to get her out of here before the thing blew up. Um, but there's a lot of people in media, a lot of people in the entertainment business who are up to their earlobes in this thing. And I think it's unfortunate. I think many of them are going to get sued uh, extensively. And it's appropriate because this is fraud. There's nothing here. The, the notion of a bankruptcy liquidation for this company is almost silly. What is there to liquidate? nothing here. Right. Yeah. You know, the, but bankruptcy is about recovering assets and trying to make you know, something good out of a bad situation, but that's a, there's nothing good here. <laughs> does um, does Caroline Ellison does she she have a soft landing at Wayland Global Advisors? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's got that. No, BA. I was very vocal. Me and Nuriel Rabini were arm in arm on this early on. I remember back in 2017, I wrote a really scathing piece for American Conservative. And people thought I was so unreasonable and I wasn't, you know, in tune with tech and all the rest of it. I said, no, this is fraud. Mark Twain taught us everything we need to know, guys. You know, come on. Anyway. So. Well, but also, too, I mean, he gave this, you know, Bankman Freed, he donated $40 million to mostly liberal candidates. And I don't you yeah, think some of the politicians. Where did that I mean, money come from? I know. There's well, people in the Bahamas who think that there was 
a recycling of yeah. dollars that the Biden administration was sending to Ukraine. Right. And then they, in turn, were buying crypto because a lot of countries around the world saw crypto as a panacea, obviously. And uh, then that money was going back into Democratic campaign. How about that? I don't know if that's true, but that's some of the rumors that are floating around the island this morning. Well, especially when FTX set up that uh, joint venture with Ukraine that was announced back in March. Oh, I know. Wow. I know. The whole thing is crazy. So I think, unfortunately, many nations, Salvador, there are many others that got into this are going to get burned. And this guy is going to end up uh, right up there with Ponzi, one of the more famous frauds of the age. So but we're so, in the Gilded Age again, guys. This is the 1920s. It just happens to have tech. So what do you think about uh, crypto, the crypto sector generally beyond FTX? What, what, what happens in that sector now? There are people who are going to hang on because they have no choice. Uh, but I think ultimately it's going to go away. It'll just people will forget it and stop talking about it. You think that you think it's tulip mania? It's just it's going to just dissipate yep. into the ether. Yep. yep. Interesting. And it was a purely a function. If you want to lay blame, the intellectual author was Janet Yellen and, and Powell. And you could blame Bernanke too. But you keep interest rates artificially low for a decade, and you, you know, basically foment and encourage really stupid acts. That's just the way humans are. If you can't let them make money in a normal way, they'll find another way to make money. They'll play games. That's what crypto was. It was a new game. We got a forecast over the weekend from Morgan Stanley downgrading the recession to a Category 1, which is sort of what you were saying when you last appeared on this show, that it's not and, – and others, too, our friend Jim Urio at Fox Business suggesting – and Scott uh, Shelley as well – suggesting that the recession is going to be longer – than people think, but more shallow than they think as well. What's what's your perspective as we stand here today with some the market rallying last week on the uh, better inflation numbers? Well, look, the street, almost every economist that you hear from works for a buy side firm. So they all want the market to go up and they want their clients to stay fully invested. OK, mm -hmm. they're never going to tell you to go to cash because that's not how they make money. And I think, unfortunately, um, people don't really understand just how humiliated and chastened I think the Fed was by missing this and, and ending up in the position they are now. So when they talk about 6 or 7% for Fed funds, that's not good, guys. That's going to drive the stock market down another 15 20% from where it is. Because if you look at the banks I follow, they're not cheap right now, Dan. JP Morgan's at one and a half times book value this morning. Now, the question is, with the losses that are hidden in these banks, all those low coupon securities and loans that we created in 20 and 21, when the street has to take those losses, things won't look as good. We're going to adjust book value down for a lot of these companies by at least 10, maybe 15 percent. That's a big number. That's a very big number. He is so you could have a trillion dollars worth of losses in the banking system that we have to figure out what to do with, you know, next year. He is Christopher Whalen, investment banker, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, LLC, author of Ford Men from Inspiration to Enterprise, editor for the Institutional Risk Analyst, and future Senate Republican candidate in New York State. <laughs> we pre yeah, appreciate we it. breaking news. Tell you. <laughs> yeah, that's my dream. i got to find a pile of cash to go to war with. But I would. I tell you, if I had the 
if I had the financial wherewithal, I would love that ring. Maybe you know, go to that. Dan uh, knows some people there. who run super PACs. Well, go to the go to the, the listen, go to the to the Chinese heart. go to the the Chinese guy at, at Binance that uh, that you know <laughs> that bankrupted Sam Bankman Fried. Think of how many Whalens there are in New York. Okay, and they're all cousins, by the way. Of course uh, they are. It, it, it would be fun. They're all still in Poughkeepsie. God help us. What are they doing? Man? There's there's the voting. Right. There's a, there's the base from which to build. Uh, Chris Whalen, thanks yeah. as always. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. And, and speaking of candidates, Dan, a big name in the Chicago mayoral race has just announced that he is dropping out Alderman. Raymond Lopez said that despite getting 26,000 signatures, he has decided to drop out of the race and instead seek a third term as Alderman of the 15th Ward. Yeah, he's got the same problem Chris Whalen does. No money. <laughs> uh, not that Chris doesn't, but you know what I mean. I hear yeah. you. And Mr. No money Whalen, for Ray Lopez. Yes. He's gone. Mr. Whalen joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, incoming House Judiciary Committee Chairman, Congressman Jim Jordan, was on Maria Bartiroma yesterday with uh, his colleague, Congressman Jim Comer, who is the incoming chairman of the House Oversight Committee. Those two gentlemen were central to the press conference held last week, announcing their intent for a full investigation into Biden, Inc., since the big guy, Mr. 10 percent, President Biden is implicated in so much of Hunter Biden's business dealings and his brother Jim Biden's business dealings, too. Talked uh, about a number of things, including um, these uh, these uh, suspicious activity reports, 150 suspicious activity reports from banks where Hunter Biden was moving money around. And uh, I believe they said only three of those reports have been made available to them so far. Uh, Jordan gave a bit of a summary of the last decade of activity from the Department of Justice, which necessarily implicates the FBI as it pertains to conservatives, including but not limited to Trump. This against the backdrop of Merrick Garland's announcement on Friday of, of special counsel to lead the investigation into Trump and Jim Jordan gave us some perspective on that special counsel as well. But I want to go back. I want to go back to May of 2013. The inspector general at the Treasury Department issues a report and says Obama's IRS targeted conservatives. In our in our investigation at that time, we discovered that the Department of Justice was trying to find ways to prosecute the very people who Obama's IRS targeted. And, and Maria, guess who? Guess who was the, the lead person at the Justice Department looking for ways to target and prosecute the very people Lois Lerner went after? Jack Smith, the guy Merrick Garland just named as special counsel to go after President Trump. Now, think about this in the broad sense. In 2016, they spied on President Trump's campaign. In 2018, it was the Mueller investigation. In 2020, they suppressed the Hunter Biden story just days before the most important election we have. And in 2022, 91 days before the midterm election, they raided President Trump's home. And then this week, 
three days after President Trump announces he's running for president, one day after Mr. Comer did his press conference, guess what? Merrick Garland says, we're going to put in as the special counsel the very individual who was at the Justice Department and was looking for ways to prosecute the people Lois Lerner and Obama's IRS targeted. If that's not a political Justice Department, I don't know what is. So, For reaction to that summary, we're pleased to be joined by Thomas Baker. He's a retired FBI special agent and legal attache and the author of the soon-to-be-released book, The Fall of the FBI, How a Once Great Agency Became a Threat to Democracy. Thomas Baker, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, I'm glad to be with you. Uh, how do you react to uh, that little 10-year summary from Congressman Jordan? Well, actually, it was an excellent summary of recent developments on your part. Uh, I think uh, Jordan undoubtedly is going to be the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee come January. And I think this actually presents an opportunity, if they're willing and recognize the opportunity, for the FBI to begin reforming itself. Uh, Jordan is uh, Jim Jordan's going to definitely have them up on the carpet. There's a lot they can do inside the FBI to start to get the House in order. And this should be taken as an opportunity. Will it be? I don't know. Well, well Christopher Ray, when he came in, replacing Comey, he came in with this laundry list of internal reforms he was going to institute to address the problems that occurred under Comey. And I don't think there are too many people that are convinced that uh, either they were made or they had much of an impact. So how optimistic should we be that the FBI at the upper reaches has the ability, the willingness to reform itself? Well, frankly, honestly, sadly, I'm not optimistic, but I, I still hope and pray uh, that they will reform themselves. The problem with, with Ray and with others, uh, and this is widespread, and I've heard him say this in numerous times when he's talked to the former agents, he views this as some rotten potatoes. Uh, that's the term he uses. Most people would say rotten apples. And he continually points out that they're gone. Uh, the, the first batch of uh, Comey struck McCabe, uh, they, they were all shown the door. Uh, most recently, the ASAC in Washington Field, who deep-sixed the Hunter Biden investigation, was allowed to walk out the door. And they constantly say, well, these people are no longer with us. But what, what they haven't looked at, it, it, it seems, what they haven't recognized is that there is an underlying cultural problem that has allowed this situation to develop. And, and that's really the, the entire subject of my book, The Fall of the FBI, how this came about, how we got there. And, and it, it, it goes back to Mueller's time as director. Well, but when do you think Americans started losing faith in the FBI? Or was it a collaborative event? I think they started losing faith as it became apparent that the, the first investigation, of course, the, what was called the Russian collusion investigation, when it became apparent to everybody, anybody who looks at it really, has to recognize there was absolutely no basis, no predicate information, no what some people call probable cause to undertake that investigation. The whole thing was a sham. Uh, the Steele dossier was a sham. We now know that after two trials that uh, John Durham has conducted and, and America has started to lose faith. Faith can only be restored when the FBI is restored to a swear to tell the truth law enforcement organization. So so what happened? I mean, you uh, go back to I was reading a bit about you. You go back to 
being assistant special agent in charge in the D.C. office when Reagan was uh, the, the attempted the attempted assassination of Reagan occurred. And and so so from from that time, you know, 40 years forward, what, what happened to get the FBI to where it is now? Here's what what's specifically happened and, and maybe the, the key uh, critical moment. And, and this is very well documented now. Mueller, Robert Mueller, became director of the FBI less than a week before the attacks of September 11th, which happened on a Tuesday. On that Saturday morning, September 15th, he was called to Camp David in in, uh, the presidential retreat in the woods in Maryland to present the, he believed, to present the FBI's report on the investigation. And in three and a half days, And that was all it was, really, between that Tuesday and that Saturday morning. The FBI had done what it does best, investigate. And the FBI had identified all 19 hijackers, their contacts, their connectivity back to al-Qaeda, the rental cards they used, the credit cards they used, the telephones they used. All of that was done in a package. And Mueller stood up at that meeting in Camp David where the president was there with his top advisors and presented this report, expecting praise or thanks. Uh, As he got to the end of the report, President George W. Bush said to him, I don't care about that. I just want to know how you're going to prevent the next one. Shortly thereafter that morning, George Tennant, then the director of the CIA, uh, made a proposal in front of the group or a plan of action going forward. George Bush said, and this is well-documented, that's great. He turned to to Mueller and said, that's what I want to hear. Mueller was humiliated. He had only been the director at that point about a week. And he's told us this several times. He was humiliated by that. He then set about to change the culture of the FBI. That's the word he used. And he he wanted to change it from a law enforcement mindset to an intelligence mindset. And and so and continue the implications of that culture change and that that move from from law enforcement to intelligence. In in a law enforcement culture, when it's working right, the the people involved, the agents or the police officers or whoever, they they consciously or unconsciously, they're working forward to the day when they have to stand up in court before a judge or before a jury or before a grand jury, raise their right hand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that informs their whole mindset. In an intelligence agency, they deal in deception, deceit, they live by lies, and their product is an estimate. They call it an intelligence estimate. We would call it a best guess. Guesses aren't allowed in court. So it, it, intelligence agencies tend to, and this, this is historical, try to please their political masters. And mm. that change in mindset at the top levels of the FBI over the past almost 20 years now it has, has infected this and allowed this rot to take place where things are played fast and loose with the truth. I mean, the abuses alone in getting those FISA warrants where there were lies told to get a FISA warrant on a U.S. citizen uh, was unthinkable in my days. I mean, it just was unthinkable. 
Yeah, that that's a really interesting distillation. I don't know if I've ever heard it uh, quite summarized that way. And 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 the point too that that the intelligence community then is is more disposed to pleasing their political benefactors. Well, then what does that say about the CIA at present and the the interaction? I mean, I I, I understand technically they they have different charges, but. I mean, the what we saw over the last six years is a lot of the former CIA sort of flying in formation with present and former FBI and then uh, and, and, and speaking publicly in a way that we're not used to. I mean, John Brennan and FBI on the CIA side and, and FBI officials past and present were ubiquitous on cable news. Yes. Are you there? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, And in my book, The Fall of the FBI, I go into that and I do the contrast with the intelligence agencies. I particularly point out Brennan's role in giving birth to the the whole Russian collusion narrative. uh, And he used our British allies in helping to do that. Uh, What I explain, and I give numerous examples, uh, which you may know, my last two assignments in the FBI, I was assigned abroad as a legal attache. And I had on a daily basis almost uh, to work with people from various intelligence agencies, particularly our own. And the difference in culture is apparent. And other people who are in my position noticed it the same way. On one occasion, uh, and I go into this in, in the fall of the FBI, I had a chief of station. That's what they call the person in charge of the CIA office in an embassy. The chief of station tell me that he had no compunction or hesitation in lying to the ambassador. Well, to, to my uh, law enforcement, swear to tell the truth, soul, that, that's just shocking. Uh, the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador, is the personal representative of the president of the United States. Uh, to lie to that person is just shocking. But he said, no, they, they would lie to her or him, as the case may be. That's, I mean, so, it's, so it's if you so- can't. So if you can't get a leadership change in the FBI, just sticking with the FBI for a minute, to get a culture change, then, as some have argued, should the FBI be dismantled altogether and reconstituted? Do you think something as drastic as that should be on the table? Well, at this moment, I don't. Uh, I think it's good. It's been good. I've told people this and others have told people this for, for generations, for decades. The United States is sort of unique as a democracy or as any country that we have for our domestic security agency, our domestic intelligence agency, uh, a law enforcement agency. That is, that is the FBI. So the law enforcement agency has to and should operate within certain legal guardrails. In our case, the biggest legal guardrail of all is the U.S. Constitution. So I have actually bragged to people that were so blessed by that. Unfortunately, the way things have started to develop lately, I think maybe we're cursed to have uh, a domestic intelligence agency that has police powers. It's it's kind of flipped, and I think we have to turn that around. He is Thomas Baker, retired FBI special agent and legal attaché. His new book, The Fall of the FBI, How a Once Great Agency Became a Threat to Democracy, uh, set to be released December 6th. So pre-order it now on Amazon and uh, associated websites where you can do that. Thomas Baker, 
The Fall of the FBI is the book. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan and Amy. Thank you both very much. Thank you so much, and good luck with the book. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Trump impeachment one was only three years ago. It seems like it was three lifetimes ago, doesn't it? Yeah. 1919. uh, They were moving on him right about this time just three years ago. Uh, One of the uh, those who testified during the impeachment proceedings was Gordon Sundland. He was the United States ambassador to the EU appointed by President Trump, you'll recall. And um, when we were dissecting all of the testimony from all those who offered it to the various House and Senate committees. We uh, we we noted uh, some confusion at the time trying to update people's memory here. This was some of what Gordon Sunland had to say about the central question, which was President Trump's conversation with President Zelensky of Ukraine. Was there a quid pro quo? Was it you do this, uh, meaning investigate the Bidens, or no foreign aid? Was there a quid? Was that the quid pro quo? Was that what President Trump was saying on that call? And here's some of what Ambassador Sundland said during his testimony. Was there a quid pro quo? As I testified previously, with regard to the requested White House call and the White House meeting, the answer is yes. There was a quid pro quo to have the call, but was there a quid pro quo on the substance of what was discussed? But I believe I just asked him an open-ended question, Mr. Chairman. What do you want from Ukraine? I keep hearing all these different ideas and theories and this and that. What do you want? And it was a very short, abrupt conversation. He was not in a good mood. And he just said, I want nothing. I want nothing. I want no quid pro quo. Tell Zelensky to do the right thing. Something to that effect. Well, again, I didn't know that the aid was conclusively tied. I was presuming he was in a position to say, yes, it was, or no, it wasn't, because... And he said, yes, it was, did he He said, yes, it was. So, no, it wasn't, yes, it was. Hmm. I'm still confused. Yeah, what's the real answer? We're pleased to be joined by Ambassador Gordon Sundland, who has a new book, The Envoy, Mastering the Art of Diplomacy with Trump and the World. Ambassador Gordon Sundland, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning. It's my pleasure. So uh, can you uh, provide some more color to your testimony from three years ago that it it wasn't a quid pro quo? You had the conversation with Trump where he said, no quid pro quo, don't want a quid pro quo, tell Zelensky to do the right thing. But then you believed it was a quid pro quo, according to your testimony. (laughs) Well, I had a quid pro quo this morning. I went into a coffee shop. They gave me a cup of coffee and I gave them my American Express card. So we're we're making a lot of of nothing about the phrase quid pro quo, which means something for something. And really what we need to focus on is the substance of what happened. Uh, When I I testified, I was talking about my direct knowledge, because when you go into my book, The Envoy, it talks about the fact that Trump wanted to punt the entire Ukraine situation over to Rudy Giuliani. 
which disappointed all of us, those that worked on the Ukraine file, Ambassador Volker, Secretary Rick Perry, and myself. Why is Rudy involved in this at all? So what came from Rudy initially was if Zelensky agrees to restart old investigations that had been ongoing in Ukraine, that had been shut down, and just agree to restart those investigations into corruption in general, no mention was made of Hunter Biden, Burisma, uh, military aid, nothing. Just restart the investigations, which, by the way, Zelensky campaigned on that issue, that he had agreed to do that as part of his campaign platform when he was running for president. So if he had agreed to do that and say it publicly, then Trump would agree to give him a meeting in the Oval Office. That was it at the time. Nothing more. So so then the, the, when when Trump said to, to to you, per your testimony, um, no quid pro quo, just tell him to do the right thing. His do the right thing. That was taken by you to mean uh, keep your campaign promise and root out corruption in Ukraine. At the time, it was. Now, with 2020 hindsight, as this thing began to uh, unravel further uh, through Mr. Giuliani, there kept being uh, more ornaments since it's nearly Christmas. I can use this analogy. There were more ornaments put on the tree. First, it went from restart the general investigation to all of a sudden, uh, apparently they wanted Burisma and Hunter Biden investigated. And then inexplicably, military aid was withheld. Uh, and no one could explain at the State Department, at the White House, why the aid was being withheld, what would restart the aid, et cetera, et cetera. And again, this became very murky. But now with 2020 hindsight, everyone can see clearly what happened. But none of us were, in effect, briefed on why all of those things were added and changed. So what's your view on why it happened? With 2020 well, hindsight. I think, I, again, I can't say with specificity whether this came from Giuliani himself, whether it came from the president through Giuliani, and no one has ever to this day been able to give me a definitive statement. And to me, those definitive statements would have to come from either of the two principals, Trump or Giuliani, and we've never had those conversations. But I suspect Trump was frustrated that Zelensky wasn't agreeing to do the uh, the restart of the investigation and sort of started upping the pressure up into including the military aid. But again, that's my personal speculation. I've never been able to get to the bottom of it. So is it your view that President Trump com committed an impeachable offense on that phone call with President Zelensky? It's not my view that he did. Um, what what I've said very publicly and very vocally uh, was that I've supported President Trump from the day he first came down the escalator up until January 6th. I thought that all of the actions and things that he did during the time he served as president, some of them were reprehensible, some of them were really good, and he actually moved the uh, agenda and the cause of the United States forward, and some of them were very uh, subject to debate. None of them, in my view, rose to an impeachable offense. I thought that anything that he had done that the voters didn't like should have been settled at the ballot box in 2020, which, in fact, is what happened. On January 6th, all of that changed. And I thought that the failure to quash the, uh, the insurrection, the failure to turn over the keys the way we do in the United States, 
for a peaceful transfer of power. That, to me, rose to an impeachable offense, but nothing prior to that. Well, what about was, now with this special uh, you know, prosecutor that was assigned, Jack Smith? He, you know, Merrick Garland assigned that to him two days, three days after he announced that he's running for president. What do you make of that? Well, I think a skeptic would say it's very politically motivated, given the timing. Now, to be clear, I don't want President Trump to run for re-election. Uh, not from a legal standpoint, but I don't believe that he would be the right person to carry his own policies forward in 2024. And even if he were fortunate enough to win the presidency again, I don't believe that he could govern effectively, given all of the investigations and all of the agita that he creates around him. And what I'm interested in is having those policies reenacted by someone who can do that. And I think there are a handful of great candidates that the Republican Party has that can take the Trump policies forward. I don't believe it should be Trump. Why do you think January 6th was an insurrection? That that uh, Im- implies uh, coordination, planning, uh, coordination and planning the FBI hasn't been able to identify to this point. I'm using the term insurrection not in a legal sense, but in a practical sense. As, as the ambassador to the European Union, and I point this out in the Envoy in my, in my new book, uh, I, I learned one thing. These democracies that are looking up to us, whether they're fledgling, whether they're autocracies that want to be democracies, look to us for the one thing that we do best of anyone in the world, which is the peaceful transfer of power. We don't do it at the point of a gun. We don't do it with a coup. We do these ceremonial things that are so critical. We ride in the car with the next president whose guts we probably hate, and we make nice. We sit through their inaugural address. We leave the note in the drawer, and then we have a peaceful transfer of power. And in all situations, I think Trump violated that, and I really believe that just the fact that he did not preside over a peaceful transfer of power. And this has nothing to do with legitimate legal questions about election fraud or anything else. I'm talking about the peaceful transfer of power. I think that in and of itself was an impeachable offense. That's my personal view. That's not a legal opinion. Uh, from your time as a, as a U.S. ambassador to the EU, um, did you have the occasion to uh, interact with uh, CIA, FBI, officers uh, routinely, and and did you uh, come away with uh, any concerns about uh, how the CIA and the FBI operate in, in, in the modern context today? Well, I had, you know, the daily occasion to work with the CIA and FBI since both agencies were stationed at my post, and I was the chief of mission, so I was their superior. Uh, and the, the work that we did was not domestic work. It was obviously foreign work. Uh, one thing I was concerned about relating to the intelligence community in general is I thought there was a lot of overclassification going on. I would read things that had, you know, it looked like a fancy red stripes on it and say all kinds of scary things on the front, front cover that I had the world secrets in my hand. And then I'd start reading the actual document and say, didn't I read this in the New York Times last week? I mean, this is ridiculous. Why is this top secret? So I think a lot of that occurred only to perpetuate a large, large, large bureaucracy. That's not to say that the CIA and the other intelligence agencies don't do some incredible work. 
that have saved countless lives and have protected the United States. But there is also a bureaucracy that loves to hype up the classification. Did you uh, ever feel like you were being lied to? And I asked that question because we just talked to a, a retired FBI special agent uh, named Thomas Baker, uh, who uh, talked about the culture change in the FBI that occurred with uh, under Bob Mueller and, and then has now been perpetuated for two decades, uh, moving away from law enforcement into being an, an intel agency itself domestically, like the CIA is internationally. And he said he had a conversation with the station chief, uh, one of his posts where he was a legal attache for the FBI, but the CIA station chief said in no, no uncertain terms, you know, I'm, I, I would absolutely lie to the U.S. ambassador of wherever if I thought it advanced the uh, CIA's intel interests, essentially was the point. And, so I, and, and he found that to be a rather shocking statement. So, so I wonder, um, you know, if you ever felt like you were being misled or given incorrect information for purposes that were to, you know, for the purpose of advancing the interests of the agency, maybe not necessarily advancing the interests of the United States. Well, as I say in the envoy, I was lied to every day, and I knew I was being lied to, and they knew I knew I was being lied to. And so, you know, this became a pick-your-battle sort of thing. If I thought something was important enough, I knew what leverage I had to employ, and I didn't hesitate to employ it. But there were a lot of battles that weren't worth picking, and I didn't. Well, but is that, yes, is, but, 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 but is, that, is that sort of a, uh, a problematic commentary on those agencies, if that's true? It's a hugely problematic commentary because there's a great deal of hubris that exists within those agencies that they know better, that elected officials, appointed officials confirmed by the Senate uh, aren't either trustworthy or entitled to really understand what's going on, which, you know, begins to erode effectively civilian control over our government. And this occurs in every agency, both the intelligence and non-intelligence agencies in our government which is, you know, the vast bureaucracy that, that basically um, has its own drummer to which it, uh, it follows. And it's something that was very, very threatening to them when President Trump came into office. One of the good things he did was he knew that was going on, and he knew a lot of his policies were not being executed because people didn't agree with them. And their job is not to agree or disagree. Their job is to give their best advice assuming what he wants to do is legal. And if they don't like it, if they can't support it, they should resign. But that's the last thing they're going to do because they love their jobs. He is Gordon Sundland. He's the former United States ambassador to the EU, appointed by President Trump. His new book, The Envoy, Mastering the Art of Diplomacy with Trump and the World. Ambassador Sundland, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM 560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.